At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non-toxic, non-flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco-friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. Nice Job can help you get the reputation you deserve. Nice Job's automated reputation marketing tools are easy to use and super effective. Collect two to three times more customer reviews and have the ability to share that social proof where it matters most. New signups can get $50 off when they mention the HVAC Know It All podcast. If you're looking to grow your small business, visit NiceJob at NiceJob.com. This podcast is sponsored by The Master Group, and one of the tools that they don't carry on the regular, but I think they're going to start to now, or at least maybe, hint, hint, Master Group, carry it, (laughs) is the NAVAC line of tools. Now, the reason I say this is because I was in one of their branches and I saw the NAVAC battery-powered pump sitting on the counter. That tells me that they are looking at it or enough people are, are coming in requesting it. All right, so if you're looking to get into NAVAC stuff and you have interest in those battery-powered pumps, because they are badass, Master Group can definitely bring it in for you. So check them out. Check out master.ca. What's up, guys? We're back with another podcast. We got Joe Tabando from Armstrong Fluid Technologies on the show. We're going to talk about something that's important. We're going to do some HVAC learning here. Physical pump service and maintenance things to do things to avoid Uh, when we put together a shaft seal and then we install it into a pump let's say we're changing a mechanical shaft seal things to avoid because you can't get it dirty we're going to talk about why a shaft seal might fail right we're going to talk about pump curves and how we can troubleshoot a pump and know that we have enough gallons per minute where it needs to go like we have enough flow by looking at a pump curve, which I think is really important. I've never done myself, and we're going to learn about this together on this podcast. So let's get to it, guys. This is the HVAC Know-It-All Podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. Welcome to the HVAC Know-It-All Podcast. Recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto, Canada. Your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC. From storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy the show. You said to me on the phone the other day and something about warranties and you're, you're the guy that voids them or you <laughs> tell oh, us about uh, that. I don't void them. No. So what I do is, um, or my team, you know, where I work, I work at Armstrong Fluid Technology and, uh, People come to us with their issues, field service yep. issues, and um, it's it's our job to vet the issue. Of course. Right? We want to make sure that, uh, not that it's a legitimate complaint, but mainly, you know, can we help somebody resolve their issue uh, without having to resort to a field service call, which, you know, if it's if there's an issue with the pump that's caused by something that's not, uh, so, you know, the warranty covers defects in materials and workmanship, and it's just the same for any any pump company or probably any 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 manufacturer of, of goods, right? It's the defects in materials and workmanship. So we want to make sure that um, you know we vet the issue and and determine that it's not caused by something like operator error or installation issue or something that's a, a site issue. Uh, and with pumps, there's a lot of things. So a lot of things that go wrong with them. And there's a lot of, you know, things that can cause these, uh, you know, issues with pumps from installation to, you know, proper operation. So, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm the guy that voids the warranty. No, no, but not at all. We're just, myself and my team are the ones that uh, determine whether something would be covered or not. So you play a tech support role over at Armstrong? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's cool. So tech support these days, a lot of manufacturers they've got it. Some of them are really good at it. Some of them are not so good at it because it takes forever for them to get back to you. I'm not going to go start naming names, but we do rely on tech support quite a bit in the field. 
And it's good to know that there's tech support out there that is going to have our back. They're going to vet the issue properly. They're not going to, they're not going to give in. See, there's always this thing out in the field. There's like the, the tech and then the manufacturer and then, oh my God, are they going to avoid my warranty or am I going to get warranty and, and this and that? So can you talk about that for a little bit and, and how you go maybe vetting a warranty? Like you said earlier, like you've got to vet the problem to make sure it's an issue with the maybe the install or the service that was done, or if it's an issue with the actual physical part itself. Exactly. And um, so, yeah, and, and for my team, for example, we, we, we handle the, uh, the post sales. So we're like after sales service and after sales tech support. So we're the ones that feel the calls from the technicians in the field. And so say somebody calls up and they, you know, I've got a pump that's, um, that's vibrating and it's vibrating. And it seems like it's vibrating more than it should. Okay, fair enough. You want to make sure, first of all, that the pump is installed correctly, right? So it's installed as per the INO manual. Uh, and depending on the model of pump, uh, you know, if it's a base-mounted pump, uh, the base must be securely mounted. If it's a vertical inline pump, there are certain ways that, you know, it should be hanging from, uh, um, from the pipes. It shouldn't be directly coupled to the floor. You want to look at things like, where is the pump operating on its curve? Right, because if it's running way out on its curve, basically, you're, you, what that means is if it's flowing too much or more than design um, flow, that will cause issues, vibration issues. Yeah. Um, if it's running near shutoff, which means um, you know, the, the discharge valve might be nearly closed and the pump is operating too far to the left, meaning a lot of the water is being churned in the pump, that also causes vibration. You know, things like. Um, we can ask uh, someone to or a technician to decouple the motor and the pump and try and isolate where the where the vibration is. Is it in the motor? Is it in the uh, the pump? And if you've got a vibration meter, we would ask somebody to take um, vibration measurements. A lot, a lot, most times that doesn't happen, but I, I think the the basics are things like uh, read the suction and discharge gauges, and let's see where the pump is operating on its curve. First of all, first and foremost, I think that's number one. Make sure the the pump is installed as per the I&O, installed correctly, and secondly, make sure it's being operated where it should be on its curve. Mm-hmm. When you say I&O, what, what's that? I&O is an installation and operation manual. Oh, okay. I've never heard it called that before. Cool. Maybe I'll start calling it the I&O. I&O? Yeah, I, re- yeah, I mean, re- I've just referred to it, I guess. You know, the, way, the yeah. RTFM, read, read the, the fucking manual? <laughs> Yeah, I know that one. Yeah. No, no, no. We can call it the R R T I N O, or NFG. Or you know, you know that one, <laughs> NFG. Yeah, yeah. There's people that say read the fantastic manual. So, in a, in, a, in a way to get that <laughs> that swear word yeah. out of there, um, I think that was Brian Orr that made that up. So let's talk about pump maintenance because mm-hmm. pump maintenance is, and you just covered a little bit of of that is making sure that the install is done correctly. Because if it's not, guess what? we're going to have an issue. And then we look in the manual to see what the issue is. And I think we're going to get to pump curves a little later on, because I want to ask you some questions on that. But pump maintenance, what can we do to make sure the pump is maintained throughout the course of its life? I think number one, um, well, pumps are designed to pump clean fluid. Mechanical seals are designed to, to you know, seal. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, but it's it's clean fluid. Mechanical seals, are they're not designed to seal um, fluid that's full of grit mm-hmm. or what we call suspended solids. So number one, uh, I would say ensure that your flush line, they typically pumps have the seal flush lines, ensure that those flush lines um, are operating properly, which means the isolation valves on them are open. These lines are not clogged. They don't have air pockets in them. If you have filters on your flush lines, ensure that those filters are changed on a regular basis. You know, people always ask me, well, how often should I change these filters? And that all depends on how clean the, uh, the, the fluid is that you're pumping. So uh, I've seen mm-hmm. filters, you know, in, in uh, new construction buildings, filters that are clogged after three days. Others might last six months or eight months. So that's critical because I think the number one failure on pumps is mechanical seals. Mechanical seals are... You treat those as um, as um, consumable items because they do wear, but uh, just how quickly they wear is going to depend on how you know how well you care for them and how clean the fluid is that you pump. Mm-hmm. 
those flush lines, can I ask you a question? Those flush lines, some of them, they have that little floating ball inside, just so you yeah, can... Yeah, sight glass you, indicator. You, yeah, sight glass. And there's that little sort of, I don't know what it is, but it's it's a sphere, like a spherical shape anyway. And, it, and it's kind of like bouncing around in there to let you know that there's actually flow going through that that flush line, right? Exactly. And then that's what you want to check, because if that ball's not moving, then you know there's no flow through that flush line. And um, if there's no that flow... Flush Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off yeah. again. Uh, does that also lubricate the the seal of the pump as well? That flush yes. line. Okay, absolutely. So you know the the mechanical seal. You have two phases, typically made out of uh, carbon or silicon carbide, and there's a gap, right? There's very, very, very fine gap between the two seal phases, um, and there's a very thin film of water that has to pass between them to lubricate that because if those two seal faces touch then they essentially generate heat through friction and they burn up and gotcha. get destroyed so mm-hmm. um we, we we say seals are actually always leaking because they are there's always a thin little bit of water passing between the seal faces that, that does escape but it it flashes off it, va- it vaporizes before you even notice it i see um so Some, something that, interesting something interesting i found so i yeah i like I keep cutting you off. I just wanted no, to no. bring it up before I forgot. I found it so interesting. So I walked into a a uh, the back area where this stairwell is to get up to the roof that I work on. And inside of this room is a sprinkler room. That's where all the sprinkler pumps and pipes and stuff are. And there's a pump that just sits there and it doesn't run unless there's a maintenance or there's a problem and, and the sprinklers have to come on. So there's water dripping from the seal constantly. And I saw this, but there was water all over the floor. And I told the guy, I'm like, oh, you got water all over your floor here. So they came and they fixed it. And then I went back the next time and I see this drip again. It's dripping, dripping, dripping. I went back and told them, I'm like, it's still dripping. They're like, you know what? The guy said it's supposed to drip constantly. And there's a little, when you look closer, there's a little catch basin to actually catch the water. And I'm thinking in my head, you know what? That pump is not running like the pumps that run with the the flush lines and constantly getting lubricated all the time. So that's probably why that's happening, right? That constant drip. Uh, You know what? I'm guessing that what you're looking at there is a fire pump and it's got graphite. Yeah. So those pumps are, they don't use mechanical seals. Uh, They use graphite packing, which is, that's a very old method of sealing a pump shaft, but that leaks even more. So it is normal to see, you know, uh, depending on the size of the pump, and, and mm-hmm. the uh, suction pressure, um, three, four, eight, ten drops per minute of water. It's supposed to. If you there's a gland plate there, and if you tighten that down too much, and you make that packing too tight around the shaft, and no water can leak through, as soon as you turn it on, it'll just burn the packing up. It's just it's just graphite. It's like a graphite, uh, flexible graphite, like a um, like a plasticine or something. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's it's supposed to leak, and and that's why. And, and they pipe that to to drain. Uh, it's it's that water that's passing in between the, the packing and the shaft that's uh, lubricating it. Um, and um, yeah, if it doesn't do that, it burns up. And we get that. It happens, again, quite often. Customers will call up and say, you know, it's, oh, it's a brand new fire pump, but it's leaking. We say it's, it has to leak. If it's pouring out, then the gland plate is too loose. So there's a fine line. And, and it takes a sort of a, an experienced technician to know just how, how uh, tight to make that gland plate to get the, the desired 10 drops per minute or so of, um, of water. Mm-hmm. Too tight, and you burn the packing up. Too loose, and you've got some, you know, a nuisance uh, leak on your hands. It's different with a mechanical seal where you have... Um, two rotating elements one's a stationary seat and one is uh, rotating fits on the shaft yeah the um there's such a fine gap between the two seal faces that uh yes water does come out but it's so little it, it just evaporates uh, but it's the same idea you need that the, the water actually is the lubricant and um without that it'll burn up so if you have a flash line for example on, on the mechanical seal it, an air pocket um you may be um uh, it's a brand new system. You haven't you haven't bled all the air out of the system, or even bled the air out of the flush line. Um, that air pocket travels to the seal, and just after even just a few seconds of running dry, that seal can uh, can burn up. and And you see that we can see that. I can after a few years of experience, I can I can see if somebody returns a mechanical seal to me, or even shows me a photograph of a, of a seal that had been replaced. I can I can typically say tell them why that seal was leaking. 
Um, if I see cool. heat damage or if I see the O-ring burned up, I know it overheated and I can pretty much guarantee it, it did that because it ran dry because they had an air pocket of some sort. You could look at a seal and if you see the faces are scratched, you know that was um, grit that got, you know, they were pumping um, suspended solids, we call it. Yeah, that grit in between the two seal faces eventually will wear them wear them away it t- just fine microscopic scratches in those seal faces can can cause them to leak cool uh, to the point where it's um you know it's very noticeable even when installing a seal if you if you touch the seal faces if you get them dirty and you install the seal brand new seal it may leak as soon as you've changed it i uh, yeah somebody i remember somebody saying that recently and so what do you recommend like so you got the seal i mean I, I those seal kits i always get very very scared when i open the box that they all like fall apart and i don't know which way they went back together <laughs> anyway <laughs> when you are installing them if you can't touch them how do you recommend that you go about removing them from the package getting them into where they got to go and so on and so forth wearing gloves or something or tools you could. I mean, you know, well, gloves typically are, are dirtier probably than your fingers anyway, but uh, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to put on a pair of latex gloves on, on site. Yeah, that's, so. that's, that's what I meant, like a pair of clean latex gloves or something like that. You know what? Just be, just be, it's like a CD. Uh, if you're old enough to remember CDs. <laughs> the, oh, yeah. Trust you know, me, you know, I got a lot of scratch ones. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, just be careful. Don't touch the seal faces. Try not to. Obviously, you don't unpack the seal and then place it down with the seal face down on something. Just be careful. That's all. If you get oil or 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 dirt or or, or grit or grease on that on those steel seal, seal faces, then it may leak. So just just be careful. And when you're putting the lube uh, lubrication on on the O ring and and the shaft, don't get it on the seal faces because that's it's it's like if you're doing uh, your you know uh, say you're changing the brake pads on your car for example you know you gotta you've gotta uh, lubricate the slider pins but you definitely don't want to get uh, grease on the rotors or the on the pads so. Same thing with mechanical seal. Grease is not very good for for sealing stuff. It's good for mm-hmm. lubricating, but it's not good for sealing. So, I see. Okay. And you're not using grease, but like, uh, by the way, on a mechanical seal, you're going to use something like uh, like a P80 lubricant or even uh, a soap or a, a silicone lubricant. Um, okay. You don't want to use anything that's uh, petroleum based because petroleum can attack the the rubber O rings. Petroleum's not 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 good for uh, rubber. Mm-hmm. So. That, that's good to know i i actually don't mind changing pump seals like i, I have i haven't done a lot in my life i've done a few and i think it's kind of cool because you get to take it apart and then rebuild it and instead of just buying a new one and just bolting it down and wiring it you're actually physically taking it apart and learning something new and then when you're done and it's not leaking you're like yes i did it right. i did it right yeah. a certain <laughs> right? sense of satisfaction there yeah yeah exactly so let me ask you this so there was this chiller I was working on a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure this is a scenario where a pump seal can get damaged or cause it to leak. So it, it was decommissioned, this chiller, a couple of years ago. So there was no fluid in it. It was glycol. I believe it was like a 25% propylene mix. And there was nothing in it for two years. They wanted it recommissioned, like started back up. So we filled it up and we ran the pump and everything was good. But once we turned the chiller portion of of it on and we brought that chilled glycol temperature down close to zero degrees Celsius, the pump started to just, it just was pouring glycol out of the, out of the, the, the fit where it meets up with the, the motor and the pump. So the seal was gone. So would it sitting dry, like with nothing in it, cause that to happen? Well, there's, yeah, there's two things I can think of. I can think of that. I can think of zero degrees that's pretty cold so you could be looking at thermal shock also which could have cracked the seal faces because if it gets you know if you have a rapid change in temperature that can happen you have that thermal shock because this this chiller here actually can changes like it's a heater chiller and apparently it was a when i called around to get this thing repaired it was a high temperature seal that was in it that could withstand up to 190 degrees Fahrenheit I can't I think it was no 90 degrees Fahrenheit yeah I think so and then but this thing the temperature range is so wide it can go from minus five degrees C to uh, 30 degrees C depending on what they're doing with it so it does see a wide range to do quickly um not 
It can. It can be within 10 minutes. It can go from 30 degrees down to minus five within like 10 minutes, the, the loop, 10, 15 minutes. Could be quick enough to cause some sort of thermal thermal stress anyway on the seal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you said that you said it was the, the, the chiller was, it had been de- decommissioned and was. It was sitting was without t- any fluid in it for like two, at least two years. Yeah. Could have been dirt, eh? Could have been rust or. It could have been. Yeah. yeah, yeah, even, but uh, I took it, I just took it out, took it to uh, just a pump shop and they fixed it up and, and it was good to go. Yeah. The, the only thing I could say is that if a pump is sitting for a long time dry, it's not used. And this happens quite often too with, um, yeah, you know, buildings under construction, for example, they'll, they'll put the pumps in, they might do it a year before they want to start them up. And, um, you know, as a manufacturer, we say, well, you know, if you're going to store pumps, you got to store them properly. You have to rotate the shaft periodically because mm-hmm. you don't want to, uh, a number of reasons, but mainly, um, what can happen is, you know, we test our pumps. We, we actually put them on a hydronic test loop. There's going to be moisture in them. Uh, and if you just leave them sitting uh, after that for six months or a year, uh, corrosion can cause the impeller to sort of, uh, stick to the volute the casing internally. Back before variable speed pumps, that was really not an issue because you had, uh, you know, cr- pumps across the line. When you started them up, you had 100% torque right away. Oh, and yeah. And it would just yeah. break them free. Yeah. But on a, on a VFD, with a, you, know, you have the slow ramp up now. Mm-hmm. You don't get that torque. You don't get that initial torque. So a lot of the times that they, they just won't spin and you kind of have to break the shaft free, um, you know, if you can access it. Um, so that's one issue with storing a pump for a while. Also, is, uh, it's possible maybe the seal faces could get uh, this is this is rare but two seal faces if they you know if they've been sitting dry mm-hmm. for a year the seal faces themselves could could seize seize together uh, and when you go to start it um, you know they, they start to rotate but the damage has been done there's enough enough um, scratched or you know rubbed against each other just momentarily but that's enough to damage them and cause them to leak there's not much else really, but, uh, I mean, you can talk about, um, you know, ball bearings, ball bearings in any machine. You don't really want to sit, leave, you know, bearings, um, stationary for an extended period of time, because that can two things. It, it can cause the grease to migrate from one side of the bearing to another, uh, which would cause lubrication, starvation on, on startup. That's rare, but it can happen. And, um, also, you know, flat spotting of the, of the of the balls themselves, or even brindling of the, the the bearing races. If you have a ball bearing and and you have weight resting on it, pressing on one side constantly without the you know the the bearing rotating, then what you're doing, you know, you're putting that pressure in one spot. And over time, because no, no matter how hard a metal is, it's actually it's fluid. It's it's a it's fluid, right? It's it's elastic. So over time, that can cause brindling which is uh, that deformation in, in in the race of the of the bearing ever so slightly but then you run it and you you hear a vibration or you hear a noise you feel a vibration because of that so that's one of the reasons why we we say um well bearing manufacturers will tell you to store the bearings horizontally so that that's not an issue but if you're looking at a, say a base mounted pump with bearings that are now vertical once the pump is installed you don't want to leave that shaft sitting for years at a time you want to every month or so um rotate that shaft slightly it's the same thing even i think anybody who stores a car um stores a vehicle for an extended period of time it's the same thing you're you know the the wheel bearings it's the same put it up on jack stands or or if you're if you're going to actually put it on the on the ground you want to try and move it move it so you're not always on one spot of the bearing all the time yeah yeah no i i totally get that for sure because i can and as soon as you said that, I relate because I got a an old Jeep Cherokee, it's a '96, and it's weird because I can I put it in the garage all winter because it doesn't really get driven, and then it gets a flat tire uh, in the winter time on the passenger front, and then in the spring I fill it up and it's fine all summer, <laughs> all summer, right? Um, and I'm thinking like, okay, that's not good for that that rim sitting in that same spot all the time. Like we got to fill that tire up and maybe move the the vehicle a bit. So I I totally get what you're saying there. This segment of the podcast is brought to you by JB Warranties. 
14-day turnaround time on claims, $300, up to $300 on labor reimbursement. What am I talking about? Well, their warranty program outside of the OEM warranty. So let's say, for example, there's an expensive part in a system. It's out of warranty from the OEM, but it fails. So if, if that part's expensive, the homeowner, you're going to have to go in, you're going to have to replace it, labor, markup, blah, blah, blah. If the homeowner is not well-to-do, they're not rich, they're just the average family, a repair like that could really do some damage to their, to their wallet. So having a warranty period extended out where they pay into it little by little, it gives them the peace of mind that something like that is not going to cost them. Some customers like this. So if you want to provide that service to your customers, just reach out to JB Warranties and ask them about their program. Company Cam is a platform that was developed to keep things organized within a business. So let's say we have a project going on at um, 123 Avenue. And that project, there's four or five techs on it because it's it's a big project. Let's say it's a, a large home or a commercial building. Well, whoever, let's say everybody's doing a little bit of here and there and different parts of the job. Everybody can take pictures, videos, notes, um, GPS, time-stamped photos, and it all goes into one place, unlimited photos on the cloud. So whoever wants to look into this job can see exactly what's happening. They don't need to get text messages from different people. It all goes into the cloud to one spot. So that's the advantage of keeping jobs organized. And you can also use that as leverage. If a customer wants to complain about something, you can go back and go, no, no, listen, uh, GPS timestamp pick that this part of the job was done on that day. So keep it organized and you can cover your butt as well. Um, so let's talk about yellow jacket and that deluxe, uh, flaring tool, the 45 degree flaring tool. It's a handheld tool. You don't need to, so, so basically it has adjustments for the pipe size. You don't need to take the pipe out and move it around to different slots, like the old school blocks. You just adjust the, 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 and they turn, you adjust them to the right pipe size, you stick it in and it, and it creates a, a really, really nice flare. And it's an old school style flaring tool where you got to turn the crank by hand, but it makes a really nice flare. And that is by yellow jacket, uh, Testo stuff, guys, you know, I, I love my Testo stuff and we did a little demo of, a anemometers the other week there. And that was pretty popular on LinkedIn. A lot of people like that. So rotating vein, hot wire anemometer. They're very valuable in the field if you're doing airflow measurements. So check out their lineup of anemometers because they got a bunch of them. Smart probes. They got ones with the, the, you can see the display right on the tool as well. So anyway, guys, let's get back to the show. Can I ask you about lubrication? Because some pumps, they got the Zerk fittings on them and some pumps, they got like the little opening or you can little flap that you can open a flap and put some some uh, more like a more of a like a liquid sort of lubricant in more the instead of like the the thicker sort of grease how do we know what sort of lubricant to use and where on on different pumps yeah um so if we're talking uh, about a motor we typically we refer to the, the 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 motor manufacturer's um recommendations for what type of grease to use all right yep um and also the schedule. So, you know, because it depends on the duty cycle of the motor, but many motors these days don't even have grease fittings anymore. They have sort of permanently lubricated bearings and don't mm-hmm. need any grease. Yeah. The ones that do, you know, depending on the RPM of the motor and, and uh, the duty, anywhere between maybe 7,000 hours to 15,000 hours lubrication intervals. And it's just a, a spot of grease. And, um, it's it's typically the the, the standard um, industrial type of grease. Um, I'm just trying to remember the no mobile. Now come to me eventually. The the actual brand names. There's a couple of brand names that we we do recommend, which are standard. And then we have what bearing about, assemblies. What, so what some about, pumps. Yeah, that's that was my next question because they they come with the little uh, like the the yellow ish color lubricant that's kind of liquefied that you in a tube that you just squeeze into the bearing assembly, right? Mm-hmm. So again, with, with, uh, with bearing assemblies, there's either re-greasable um, or permanently greased or some are actually oil filled where you would use a, just a standard, like a 30 weight oil, a gear oil or machine oil. 
and then the uh, the grease again is um, it's your standard industrial grease. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Uh, it, it'll come to me. Yeah, no big deal. Um, okay, so we talked about shaft seals and sort of um, things to look for when we're installing them, things to look for that could cause them to fail. Uh, so one thing that we should talk about is is pump curve because I don't think a lot of people understand them fully. And I'll be totally honest, I've never actually sat and tried to study a pump curve before. I don't know if I've ever had to or I've just been too lazy or or what it was, but I've never sat and looked at one. Can you sort of describe what a pump curve is and how we decipher one? Like, for example, just if you picked any pump curve out of thin air, like what we're looking at, what, what, what we want to see, um, maybe how to troubleshoot with one type thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, the pump curve is essentially... It tells you it's the, the characteristic curve. It's it's the it tells you what the flow and head uh, performance for that pump are. So it essentially tells you at what you know at a certain flow what what head the pump should produce. Okay. And this helps you troubleshoot say issues where if somebody says the or the pump is not performing as it should, um, you know, say the pump is designed for say 500 gpm at 120 feet of head. 120 feet ahead is, if you convert it to pressure, it's divided by 2.31. So it takes um, one psi of pressure to move water up 2.3 feet. If it was if you pictured a vertical column, you would move it 2.3 feet. So um, and pumps produce that they they produce the head pressure. That's what they produce. And you you know you have uh, you have a, a system curve or system head that's kind of pushing back against that that pump so the pump has to pump against that system system head which you know and um it's it's the friction in the piping it's uh it's gravitational force pressing back down on the pump uh or you know the water column the pump has to pump against that so that's where you get the you know the uh the specification for the foot ahead so 500 gpm say at 120 feet if you need or if you have more system head than that, than 120 feet, the pump won't be able to push 500 GPM. So you might see if you've got um, 150 feet of head, you may see that the pump can only push 250 GPM or 300 GPM. So you look at the pump curve, and the curve shows you in relation to pump speed also, um, it it shows you what the head would be for a certain flow. I see. Okay. And, and then you can see if the pump is operating on its curve or not. And one of the ways to troubleshoot an underperforming pump, one of the first things to do is is to actually check the shutoff head, because you maybe you, you want to ensure that the the impeller diameter is correct in the pump and it hasn't been trimmed incorrectly. Uh, you know, trimmed too small, so you can isolate the pump completely and run it to, to whatever its design speed might be or maybe to 60 hertz and you look at the curve and, and the pump curve will tell you what what head pressure the pump should produce at, at closed valve or at, at uh, we call shut off if that matches what the curve says then you can be guaranteed that the the the, um, the impeller trim is correct so I got I gotta I, I gotta ask you some questions there. Okay, so when you said fully isolate the pump, you mean close the return and the supply valve? No, just just one of the, just one just of the discharge. Yeah, just, just the discharge. The, just the discharge of the pump. Okay. You never so, want to close the suction the suction valve. You never want to do that. And okay, that's, that's, you know. that's why I wanted to be clear there because when you said isolate it, I wanted to make sure I got that right. So we're just gonna close the discharge valve. Now you said we can check the pump curve. Now how do we know what the GPM is? Just if, if we if we didn't know, how would we figure that out? You can, so what you would do is you look at the, as the pump is running, you look at the suction and discharge gauges, okay. and you determine what the pump head is from that. You subtract suction from the discharge pressure, and you see what the pump, what pump head the pump is making. And then you look at the curve. And by looking at the, looking at the head on the curve, you can actually determine what the flow is there. So you can, you're essentially measuring flow indirectly by measuring differential pressure across the pump okay so you might have to say that one more time for me <laughs> so if we want if we want to get the head 
you said we we take the supply and subtract subtract the re, the return or the suction. Sorry. Uh, supply, yeah. So, so supply is your discharge pressure. Yeah. And um, well, okay. For, I think for return, you mean returning back to the pump, right? Yeah. So sorry, I'm calling it return and supply. So discharge and suction. Yeah. So discharge and supply, return is the suction side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you want to know what the pressure. So if uh, if you've got um, say 20 psi on the uh, on the suction side, okay, and 100 psi on the discharge side, then the pump is making 80 psi differential mm-hmm. okay so you can convert that you could look at your pump curve your curve may be either in head or it could be in feet so you would take the 80 psi um and multiply it by 2.31 and that would give you what your what your head pressure is and then you would look at the curve you look at the characteristic curve the pump curve you'll see that um essentially you've got on your vertical axis you've got the heads and, and the horizontal is the flow and you just sort of plot that out. Where is the head pressure? And it, you follow it down. You follow the line down, and um, it will tell you what the flow is. And that's that's physics. So the, it won't be lying to you if the gauges are correct and they're accurate. If you measure a certain head, you can follow that curve down, and you can see exactly what the flow is. If you okay. put a flow meter on it, it would tell you the same thing. So I, I got. So I'm following you there. So you, you figure out what the subtracting the discharge of suction and and so on and so forth. But then when you line it up on the the chart and it shows you a flow, how do you know that's the right flow that we're supposed to get? How do we know what what actual GPM is going on with within that thing? Um, because that is uh, essentially pump physics. It won't lie. It that. As long as the impeller is correct, and, and say you've you've measured that at shutoff, and you know the impeller trim is correct because you've mm-hmm. measured the shutoff head, when you're measuring that pressure across the pump, you can you compare it to the curve, and it will tell you exactly what the flow is. Hmm. I got to try that when I'm out on a job because I I didn't know that, and um, well I've never like I said I've never really studied a pump curve, so now I want to grab one for a pump and I want to try this. This would be kind of cool. Yeah, as long as you know. So you'll know with the speed. So if it's a constant speed pump running at 60 hertz, you look at the 60 hertz curve. If it's a variable speed pump, set it to a certain speed. Typically, you would set it to the duty speed, which you would read on the pump nameplate. And say, for example, um, I'm looking at a curve 58 hertz, and the design of the pump is 500 GPM at 120 feet. That means it could push, or 500 GPM will flow through the pump, and it will produce 120 feet of head pressure. So it's pumping against 120 feet of system pressure. If the system pressure is higher than that, you won't get 500 GPM because you would require a higher head pressure to pump that flow. And you can, like, again, you measure that by measuring the differential across the pump. Say you weren't getting 500 GPM and you you went and you measured your, your discharge gauges. And instead of seeing 120 feet, you saw, let's say, 150 feet. Well, I'm looking at the curve here, and I would say, oh, okay, so at that speed, let's see, 150 feet head pressure, then your flow actually is 350 GPM, because you just look at your vertical axis, you look at 150 feet, you know what speed the pump is running at, and you just draw a straight line down vertically, and uh, and your horizontal axis there, it will, you know, that's where your flow is, and I see it, it says 350 GPM, and you'll know that's your that's your flow. Interesting. So like I've never, obviously I, now that I, I've said that I don't really study pump curves, but I'm going to now, is that a good troubleshooting tool? Well, I guess you just said it was kind of, but is it, how often is it used in troubleshooting in your experience? Looking at pump curves. It's used very often. It's um, I, for the first, the, the first um, issue I mentioned where you know, somebody might say, I'm not getting my 500 GPM. Why? I'm only getting 350. I would say, well, on our pumps, for example, I'll tell you, our pumps, we, we can read the flow in the head on our display. But if mm-hmm. you couldn't, I would say, can you like, let's check your gauges. What is your suction pressure? What is your discharge pressure? Okay, so, you know, it's, let's say the, you know, suction, pre- suction is uh, 20 feet and my discharge is uh, 170 feet. Okay, that's 150 foot, 150 feet of head. So the pump is producing 150 feet, and I would look at the curve, and I would see, okay, at that speed, 58 hertz, or let's say 60 hertz, for example, just okay. for argument's sake, 
And I'd see, okay, 150 feet, that equates to 350 GPM. So that's all you're going to get out of the pump at that pressure. You either need less system pressure or you need a pump that can produce more head pressure to get the 500 GPM. Oftentimes, what will happen is a, a pump, when an engineer specifies a pump, they may miscalculate what the system head actually is and underestimate it. Uh, and then on site, they realize that they need a pump. To, if they need 500 GPM, they may need a pump that can produce more head to produce that 500 GPM or to to give that 500 GPM. The pump's okay. only going to... Pr- I, I yeah, see a and, scenario. And, I, go, go on. Sorry. I see a scenario, but I'll go on with what you were going to say. It, it, it can work the opposite, too. Sometimes pumps are oversized and head is overestimated. And on site, you get a pump. Uh, and again, this is the second scenario where the pump curve comes in handy is that somebody may say, uh, I'm, I'm running the pump at 60 hertz um, or design speed, and it's overamping. It's using too much current, too much power. And again, you check the gauges and you find that the head is a lot lower than anticipated. That's because, or uh, it's overamping because the pump is now running out. So as the system pressure is lower, the pump might flow six or 700 GPM at that head pressure instead of 500. But what that does is it overloads the pump mm-hmm. and therefore you you know, what they call, you know, say overamp or just drawing too much current because it's using too much, essentially it's too much horsepower. If you look on the curve, you'll see a line that actually shows what the horsepower is. It's a horsepower line. And you can see, you know, on the curve where you are, uh, say where the pump is located or running with respect Mm -hmm. to that horsepower curve also, or that horsepower line. If you exceed that horsepower line, then you've exceeded the horsepower of the motor that's on the pump. Now, normally, Pumps are sized so that the motor, um, you know, if there's a 25 horsepower motor on it, at design, you're probably, it's it's designed to use 21 horsepower, 20, you know, 1.8 horsepower. So there's a little bit of headroom there to, to run out a bit. We call it run out. If you're running to the right of the curve, if you're flowing beyond design flow, typically that's called a run out condition. And um, that can cause vibration problems. That can cause over, overloading and overamping of the motor noise a lot of issues bearing problems so that's that's another scenario where the pump curve is very important in trying to troubleshoot what the issue is noise issues vibration issues overamping issues um i'm getting conversely, if you're running to the left sorry i'm talking go ahead (laughs) I'm, I'm, i'm getting it like the more you talk the more i'm getting how important a pump curve is and i had a scenario in my head where i think that you could use this just for an example, for the audience's sake, listening, like, let's say you're in a building, it's a five story building, and you're only getting enough water, let's say it's a boiler system, you're only getting hot water to the the fourth floor. So at that point, you could go down and, and do your test, shut off the discharge and, and check. And maybe you don't have uh, your your impellers not sized large enough to get the flow you want up to the, the fifth. Is that is that a good example or no? Yeah, that, that is a good example because what you're talking about is, is a pump that you need to pump that'll produce. You want a certain flow. That's what you know. I, mm-hmm. I need this, this many GPM, but you need a pump that will produce enough head pressure to to be able to push the water up that vertical column. I, I'll typically, um, systems like that, for example, we, we produce the domestic water boosters. This is an example. These domestic water boosters are designed to boost your water pressure domestic water so that you know people on the top floor of a 50-story building still have 30 or 40 or 50 psi of water pressure for their fixtures so when they're sized they'll make a few hundred psi in the mechanical room on the basement floor so that they can produce 50 psi on the roof and um that's it's all about again you know lifting water one psi for every 2.3 feet and you know each building maybe is the you take a floor is about ten feet, and you can calculate fifty floors times ten. That's five hundred feet. You need something that'll produce you know five hundred feet ahead plus plus that fifty psi. So you can calculate that five hundred feet. I was doing an example. It's funny that you're doing that because I was doing an, an example too. <laughs> I went for just so we can get clarification as as to what you're saying. One psi equals two point three feet. So basically, if we had a 40-foot building, we would need um, 
Hold on. I think I did this wrong. I did so this wrong. A, so you had a 50-story building, let's say 50 stories, and figure 10, 10 feet per story. So that's 500 feet, right? So you've mm-hmm. got 500. You have to push water up 500 feet. And you know it takes one pound per square inch pressure to push to elevate water 2.3 feet. So mm-hmm. divide that 500 by 2.31. Whoops. And you get about 216 psi. Just that would give you, you know, static, a static column just at the top. So you want another 50 psi for your fixtures. So add 50 to that 216, and you get uh, two, about 266. So let's call it. And then you have losses, frictional losses in the piping. So call it maybe 275 psi you would want. Um, so we'd have to make 275 psi at the discharge of the pump to end up with about 50 psi at uh, 50 floors up on a 10 on a 10 story building yeah okay so yeah that's what i did wrong with mine i didn't divide so i had a 40 foot building and how much head we need to get to the top of the 40 foot building it's around 17.39 psi if yeah, we want 40, to, obviously if we're, if, we're, if we're gonna have zero psi at the top right yeah and so you got 40 feet and um divided by 2.31 so about 17.3 PSI. Yeah. And then you want to add, obviously, 40 or 50 PSI for to actually you know move the water uh, through the fixtures. So you would need, um, what's that, 67 PSI? So you need a booster pump or your pump itself would have to produce that. So 67, let's call it 70 PSI. Right? And 70 PSI is about 160 feet, 162 feet. So you'd spec your pump for whatever GPM you needed at... 162 feet and you would you know obviously you put in a safety factor in there oversize it a little bit that's that's why we rely on guys like you because <laughs> we don't out in the field that's the last thing we want to do is, is figure all that but it's good for service calls and it's good for for knowledge and stuff like that and, and any any sort of little tidbit that you pick up during a conversation like this is i think is good like for instance as you said earlier when if you see a shaft seal that's got little scratches and maybe indents on it you can tell that it was some sort of debris that was in the pump that caused that just stuff like that when you take things apart you know what to look for and i think these are important things to to know for for the average tech that's running around out there that's what i I always ask i'll say one thing i've I've suggestions for for any technicians listening is um always get the serial number I have to say, always get the serial number of the equipment that you're working on because manufacturers, if they're, if they're like, uh, if you're like Armstrong, we sort of, um, we tie everything to the serial number. If you give me a serial number, I can tell you bills of materials for that pump or for the heat exchanger, whatever it is you're working on. We can look at service history of that. So, but not only that, from the serial number, I can, you know, find the pump curve. And then if you tell me the pump is vibrating uh, or it's noisy, I can we can start looking at okay so uh, let's look at where the pump is operating on its curve is it you know is it running close to shut off or is it running in a runout condition or is it running way, right where it should be say the pump is running well that's it's running at design at duty you know what it says on the on the pump nameplate is it's almost spot on so that's not the cause of the vibration um, then it might be something else it could be a coupling uh, the coupling is uh, maybe the pump has not been aligned. So, um, you know, you can, I, I would probably ask you if you could, you know, decouple the motor in the, in the pump and then run the motor and see if you hear or feel a vibration from the motor. If the motor is pretty smooth and, and you recouple it and there's an issue, could be the coupling is at fault, could be, depending on the, pod, on the model of the pump, it ha- if it has bearings, it could be the bearing assembly that's um, got an issue. So there's a lot of things, you know, and there's a lot of, with pumps, uh, pump alignment is critical. You know, there's something um, also called um, well, pipe pipe stress or pipe strain or nozzle loading, which is really uh, where you know when when you install a pump, you you don't want to you don't want to bring the piping to the pump uh, and then you know force that piping into line with the pump discharge flange because now that piping is putting strain on that pump continually, mm-hmm. yep. and eventually it's going to go out of alignment. So you know you want to install the pump and then pipe from the pump out. A lot of people don't do that, and over time, that, that pipe strain causes issues with the pump. 
anything from uh, alignment problems to even in the worst case scenario, flanges crack or casings crack over time. You know, they've developed hairline cracks. Um, you know, what else? There's uh, things like um, bearing noise. I'll say I'll say one thing uh, for technicians out there also is um, pumps that are running on VFDs. Uh, sometimes the, the there's a VFD noise, a carrier frequency noise that um, is is to do with the this the, uh, this switching frequency of the output of the drive, switching thousands of times per second causes oscillations in the actual motor windings. Sometimes that's confused with bearing noise. So what you can do is you can actually change the carrier frequency in the drive and, and increase it. And as you increase that frequency, it's the noise is still there. The oscillation is still there, um, but um, it's beyond. It goes beyond the sort of the range of human hearing. And if it goes away, then you know that's that squealing noise, which sometimes sounds like a bearing, is was actually not a mechanical issue. It's electrical. It's it's just the uh, VFD noise. If it stays the same, no matter what the carrier frequency is, then it's more, most likely a mechanical noise. So it could be a bearing. Oh, interesting. So. Interesting. Well. Joe, on that note, I'm going to, I'm going to say this, this was a, this was a great podcast. I learned stuff I didn't know about pumps and now I'm going to take a closer look at a pump curve and I hope at least one other person out there will, um, cause I know they're not the most spectacular things to look at, but I mean, if you're, if you're wanting to learn this trade and you want to learn it in depth, I think it might be something that we should all just pick up and, and have a gander at. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, the pump curve tells you a lot. It'll tell you can explain a lot i think about some some maybe phenomenon or 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 issues that you're seeing with a pump if whether a pump is vibrating or overamping or noisy i think the first thing really always is to see where is the pump running on its curve because if it's running too far one extreme or another either too far to the left which is it's it's trying to pump against the closed valve and most of that water is just recirculating in the pump. That causes vibrations, causes noise. Or if it's running way, way out past its 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 duty, this the design duty, same thing. It can cause issues like that, vibration and noise, uh, even cavitation. You know where what happens is uh, with cavitation, you've got these little air bubbles uh, in the fluid being pumped. Kind of starts off on the suction side, and once these bubbles collapse, you hear this. Uh, it, it's it's noisy. It sounds like rocks being pumped through the pump itself. And when those bubbles collapse, they can actually pit the impeller, so it can actually damage yep. the pump. Yep. That's cavitation. I, yeah, there's there's a very good video online that I should actually attach to the the the, the podcast notes here of cavitation through a uh, clear piping and stuff like that. It's it's a very well done video, and it actually shows cavitation really really well and and how it actually happens. But um, so so. I guess with that, we'll, we'll call it. Thank you very much, Joe. I, I really appreciate your time tonight. Uh, my pleasure, Gary. Um, it was good to meet you. Good to speak with you. And um, anytime you need me back to talk about anything else, I'd be happy to. All right, guys, go grab your pump curves, study them. Try what Joe said. Next time you're working on a pump, try to get the pump curve for that pump and try what Joe said by shutting down that discharge side of the pump and calculating out what your gpm should be I, I think that'd be a cool experiment for a lot of people to try using that pump curve anyway guys i'm out thank you joe thank you master group happy hvacking hope you enjoyed the show follow hvac know it all on instagram facebook youtube tiktok twitter linkedin and anywhere else gary feels like popping up this has been a two smokes and a coffee production